If you could turn in your Bibles or on your phones to Psalm 110, please. Of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor, for young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. Good morning, everybody. Hi, I can see you. This is beautiful. Um, Welcome to Park Hill. My name's Evan, and my wife, Sandy, and I have the joy of leading this church. It's an honor to do it with our community, a leadership team, a family leading families. Uh, It's beautiful. So let's get right into it. We read Psalm 110. Today we finish our psalm series that we've called Teach Us to Pray. And we're also finishing up praying through the whole book of Psalms in 60 days, right? The 60-day challenge. How was that for you guys? Yeah, okay, good. Some of you are still alive praying the Psalms. It can be a wild ride. Um, Today's day 56, so we have five days left. You can do anything for five days. So if you fell off the train, jump back on the train for five days, no shame. Uh, We can do it. I I keep actually hearing life, like, Stories of how life-giving this was for so many of us. These last 16 months messed with all of us. Um, Like at at a core level, spiritual rhythms thrown off, mental health, so many things were shown to us about ourselves. Um, and one of them is the feedback. Like people in this church are like, man, I, I just am so thankful for a clear call to just pray the same scriptures with my church. Um, like, I don't know how much I needed to be called to just be led again in a simple practice. And so I felt that it's, it was great for me to like get back into writing songs out of the Psalms. I sense like a new season of dreaming and creativity coming, not just for me, but for our whole church as we reorient our hearts. Like, Lord, like the disciples, teach us to pray. We want, <laughs> we want to be as in tune with the Father's love as you are, Jesus. Teach us how to do this with all our feelings and our emotions. Um, so that's what we did. Prayed through uh, lament and pain over the last eight weeks and how to choose gratitude and how to pray through doubt and deconstruction how deacon, like doubt can actually be the ideal environment to find out you're growing and, and God is calling you higher. Uh, this is why Christians submit to scripture and why we sing together. All of this, we went through this. We covered a lot of ground. Um, and today we're wrapping it all up with Psalm 110, which is all about praying in Christ's victory, praying in the King's victory. This is where we've been heading, mainly because this is where the whole story goes. The whole story of scripture, it goes like this. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God the Father has made Jesus the supreme king of the universe. And his final victory over all evil is settled. That is the arc of God's story in scripture. 
And, and so the invitation of the Psalms is the Psalms invite us to bring all our prayers, whether it's gratitude, lament, doubt, song, petition, praise, and pray all of it in light of the king's victory that's guaranteed yours as a royal daughter or son of his. Okay, this is cover to cover where God's story wants to take us. It's one unified story around that reality. This king, Jesus, is inviting us to share his father's love with him forever. So on that, let me just start. We have kind of an extended intro today to get us set. Start with an observation, okay? As Americans, most of us are Americans. Last gathering, we had some French folks, um, but we're mostly Americans here. Uh, as Americans, we don't have, we're, not, we're, we're, we're uniquely unequipped. I'll put it that way. We're uniquely unequipped to understand Jesus. Why? Very practically, we don't have kings or queens. Like we literally, we never had them. We fought a war to get rid of one, right? That is our national identity. And, and we're sovereign citizens, not subjects of a sovereign. This is deeply part of how we see ourselves in, in, in the world. So we don't particularly like kings and queens unless they're like on Netflix, in which case bring it on, that's fun. So, so don't get me wrong, I'm not, this is not a shot against democracy or American government. It's great, totally fine. So we can, you know, you guys can all fire up your grills and like, light sparklers in legal places uh, on, on next Sunday <laughs> and peace, do it, 100%. Here's what I'm saying. Those of us who are Americans don't have any intuitions, no cultural memory about what it feels or means to be subject to someone. Other countries do, even democracies. You know, France got rid of its king in 1789 officially, but had a monarchy for another 100 years. If you're British, you know very well what it's like to exist in a country with a somewhat functional sovereign, you know what I mean? Like, you know what this is like, um, but we don't. And because of that, we're uniquely ill-equipped to get Jesus, because we can talk about Jesus a lot, and we do, counselor, friend, teacher, like he, he has all these great titles we attribute to him, even from the Bible, and that's great, but Jesus has a core identity, and that is supreme ruler of the universe. So the end of the story, it's literally tatted on his thigh, king over kings, lord of lords. And, and this is victory over all evil. He will one day wrap up the cosmos and every just decision over injustice will be made, including any injustice in here. <laughs> he will graciously weed it out. He's only wise enough or strong enough to implement heaven's policy in creation, right? And so uh, the question for us, <laughs> every human, becomes very, very pointed. And it is, does this king have your first allegiance? Does this king have your first allegiance? And that is what Psalm 110 is all about. So it's only seven verses long. It took John like 42 seconds to read it. But it's one of the foundational verses, one of the foundational passages in the whole Bible for the story. Uh, in fact, it's, it's, the, it's considered one of the royal psalms, and, and it's the, did you know this? It's the most quoted chapter of the Old Testament in the New Testament, like by far. So the writers of the New Testament, and Jesus himself, they couldn't stop, they couldn't get this song out of their mind. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all quote it. Peter quotes it in the first sermon of the church in Acts 2. Paul in Romans, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, they all make a big deal out of Psalm 110. And whoever wrote Hebrews, he, like six different times, he goes to these seven verses to frame his book. So this royal psalm is all over the place in Matthew through Revelation, the, the Greek New Testament, the Christian scriptures. So why are they so into it? Why is this psalm such a big deal to the first church? At least two reasons. Number one, their worldview, the New Testament writer's worldview, was completely soaked and shaped by the scriptures, 100%. Like, that's the one thing. We have a lot of competing worldviews now because we're more global and we can see how different people think, and so we, like, weigh it out. They had one. (laughs) Their worldview was shaped by the Old Testament, saturated, just like Jesus' worldview was, right? We follow a man who was also God, whose worldview he received from the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. Like the way the world works, we follow Jesus' understanding of that. And we find it in the Old Testament. And so reason number two, they were so into Psalm 110, uh, is because they were Jews, which means kings were great, as long as the king was great, Right? Like they were longing, their nation was like, when will Caesar get his just desserts from God's human king, Messiah? We, that's this, that is the, that's what every Christmas they called it, there was Passover. The whole Passover meal was like, who's going to be the new Moses to take us out of this exile under Rome? Uh, and so they were looking forward to this king. A king was a great thing, unless it was a bad king. So they kept going to Psalm 110 because that king is awesome. (laughs) He knows what to do. He knows how to fix everything. And so their view was shaped by this. So Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are considered the two big royal psalms. And um, here's the world according to Psalm 2. Here it is in summary. Psalm 2 in sum. We live in a world of rage and shallowness. I think we can agree with this. Just open any social media app at any moment, and you'll verify that that is true. We world in a rage, a world of rage and shallowness. Why? The demonic rulers of the world have rebelled against God. So in response, God has established his king on earth, his Messiah, Jesus. Jesus decisively defeated the demonic rulers by dying for the world on the cross and defeating death through resurrection. And now we have to wrestle with the question, whose side are you on? It's all about this one king who will rule one way. And so the question the Bible's trajectory like makes us have to deal with is like, oh, this is a real, this is a reality. It's not just one worldview among many that I can fit into my personal paradigm. Whose side are you on? That's the question the scriptures ask every nation, tribe, tongue. So, um, and I acknowledge this view is uncomfortable to us. I don't know if you're feeling slightly triggered, maybe a little bit offended. That's a normal feeling for modern Western 21st century people. uh, We're suspicious of authority, right? Especially ultimate claims to authority. Our default mode is like deconstruct, like we want to, it's suspect. Uh, So how do we, how do we compensate for our suspicion for authority? Well, we fall into pluralism. It's a great 
alternative from our perspective. Pluralism, right? In pluralism, it's like, hey, you can have your view of the world, and I can have mine, and, and, and it, basically, that's awesome, but as soon as you say your view is the real one, <laughs> then we got problems, because then you're too narrow, right? For example, in our culture, we talk about how important it is to respect other religions, and I believe that to my core. We should absolutely respect other religions and worldviews, but listen, in pluralism, respect often just means never, dis never saying anyone else is wrong, right? Respect in pluralism is saying everyone, all options are valid. I would argue that's disrespectful and dishonoring to other views because you're not really letting them speak or even listening to what they're saying. Uh, it seems to me to really respect other religions or views is to let them all speak for themselves and then, and then actually listen to what they're saying and then respect yourself enough to use your mind to decide which ones make sense, which ones don't, right? Um, seems pretty straightforward. So when it comes to Jesus' own worldview, he actually believed that he was the rightful king of Israel and planet rescuer, okay? It's crazy to claim that, unless it's somehow true. He claimed to be the son of God from another dimension, from heaven, from God's space. He said unbelievable things, you guys. Like John 8, he actually said, before Abraham existed, I am. Like, what do you do? Like, some, if you saw someone in real life, like, say that. Uh, I know how I'd feel. They're, they're off the rocker. So there's a place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus actually says this to a crowd. He's like, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So, like, and when was that? <laughs> like, the people, like, and where were you standing to see? Like, that's amazing. And there's a place in Matthew where Jesus is like, hey, you guys, I, I'm, I'm growing impatient. He's talking to the religious leaders. He's like, I've been sending you guys prophets and sages and teachers for centuries, and you keep on killing them. Like, you look good for 1,500 years old. What? How old are you? And, you know, he, he claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the ruler in authority over nations. And so the founders of every other religion, prophets, and teachers of Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, and all those, they basically say something to the effect of, I'm a prophet, come to help you find God, right? But Jesus is the only religion starter who said, I'm God, come to find you. He's the only one. And so it's either, he's either right or wrong, you know? There's no like mid middle, that's all the way, he's in, <laughs> you know? And if he's right, then if he's right, then he has to be the true way because that makes him the way, the God. And if his worldview is wrong, then we're actually, in Paul's words, the most pitiful people on, on the planet uh, because we follow a deranged, narcissistic dead person, you know? Um, so rabbis of Judaism, imams of Islam, and even atheists, they all say similar things. They're, they're happy saying, you know, you guys are right. Christianity is definitely not the same. <laughs> it's not equally valid. It's either the best one or the most awful option. And they're right because they're listening to what Jesus says about himself. Um, so as followers of Jesus, we believe Jesus is right. We believe he tells the truth about himself.
and the world. So we acknowledge that Jesus is the loving king and savior of the universe. And we build our lives on this fact. You like that word fact? Sometimes I don't like it. It feels mean, you know. Um, but here's the thing about like facts. Uh, a fact, a fact is not narrow. It can't be narrow or closed-minded. A fact is just a fact. For example, I wish I didn't have to eat food. I like when I get to because I'm hungry, but I wish I never got hungry because I just like to power through when I get busy. And if I never need a food or sleep, come on. I feel like I'd, you'd take over the world if you didn't need to stop for that stuff. Um, but it's a fact that you'll shrivel and die if you don't eat, right? Do we agree with that fact? That's not closed-minded, you know, that's not narrow. That's a fact. And if Jesus is the son of God and king of the world, your soul will shrivel without him and you will die. That's not narrow. It's either a fact or it's not. Jesus is either right or he's wrong about himself. So as Christians, we believe he was right. He died for our sins. Offers forgiveness and belonging to everyone who's ever felt guilt, shame, or lostness. Belonging. And then God raised him from the dead, which means God saying he was right about himself. That's God saying he was right. And every other competing worldview is actually incorrect. This is what God is saying by raising his Messiah from the dead. And one day, this Messiah's kingdom will fully come when he appears again to judge the world in perfect judgment. And when you think of judgment, you're like, oh, that's also, I don't, I don't like that. That feels, no, you actually want that. You do, because justice is only come by through someone making decisive judgments. We all want, ju we want justice. We want someone to come and make all the right decisions about all the oppression out there. The problem is we're all complicit in some way. So we need someone who knows how to implement heaven's policy and actually fix it. And guess what? Jesus is perfectly equipped with infinite wisdom and power to make all the right calls that everybody wants, uh, unless you're dead opposed to this king. And this is reality according to Jesus. This is reality. This is his worldview, which means for us as his followers, this is our reality. This is our backdrop. This is the context we pray in. We bring our doubts and suffering and pain and lament and joy and celebration. We bring it all to this God with that as our panoramic setting that he's coming and he's good and he's strong. And so Remember, I'm, I'm acknowledging today that this idea of Jesus as supreme ruler, it doesn't sit well with us. It's not natural. So for this final teaching of this Psalm series, we're going to soak, we're just going to soak in Psalm 110 because we need, <laughs> we need to have our worldview like brought into alignment with Jesus's. So Holy Spirit, come. Let's read through again. I'm going to read the odds and you guys read the evens so we can really participate together. It'll be on the screen. So of David, a psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Your turn, verse two. Ooh, yeah. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb.
The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. This is the word of the Lord. So, okay, how are you, how is, how are you doing? How are you feeling with that psalm? Like, how are you reacting to some of the language and images? Like verse three, your troops, some military violent metaphors here, your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in like their, their armor glinting in the morning sun. And your young men, you think of like, I, I immediately think of like a draft or like enlistment of all these young soldiers. How does this make you feel? That like, that, this is about, so he's, they're, they're saluting a military leader here. This is about honor and authority and power. If you're, if you're like a Lord of the Rings fan, just think Aragorn, that's pretty close. You know, like, like up on his forehead, he's got his sword and like a, a, a mass of faithful troops behind him shouting with their eyes on their leader and the enemy together with violent things happening. So this is it. It's a picture of Jesus. This is it. Running into battle, swords drawn, followers charging, and Jesus standing victorious amidst the carnage, okay? Is that, mm, yes, Lord, amen. Feels warm and fuzzy, that feels good. Like, it's definitely not like the Psalm, the shepherd Psalm 23 thing that we like. Look at verse five and six. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, king of corpses now, and crushing, that's a good band name, by the way, King of Corpses, uh, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth, man alive. Okay, a quick word on violence, <laughs> okay? Seriously, and dead bodies, quick word on what's going on here. So, so the rest of the scriptures, especially Paul and Revelation in the New Testament, makes it clear that these rulers of the whole earth who are getting squashed, they refer to the, to the demons. They refer to the demons and the humans who reflect them. So you could say Satan and all his friends, you could say. Uh, so they refer to spirits that rebelled against the creator and the human representatives who prefer these spirits when clearly introduced to the goodness of God. So this is what it's talking about. And so if you have questions, whoa, this is about a demonic battle, crazy spiritual warfare, what? If you have questions about that, go back to the Park Hill podcast. Last August, we did a two-parter. Dr. Gary Brashear spoke on dealing with the demonic. It was amazing. So helpful for our community. Um, you can learn all about this there. But here's the key, and then we'll move on to the point. The key here is all this violent battle corpse imagery is mainly about a battle in the unseen realm. That's what this is about. So back to the original question, though. How is all of this making you feel? Like, how are you reacting, responding? Is this resonating with you? My guess is it's not your life verse, maybe. It's not like on a magnet on your fridge. If it is, send me an email. I want to know you. <laughs> what is, uh, I'm interested. So because my, my guess is Psalm 110 is not the way we look for Jesus because of who we are and where we are in history, the way Psalm 110 presents Jesus is not how we typically picture him. So it doesn't warm us. We don't see green pastures and still waters 
And basically, Psalm 23 is basically kind of like a spa verse. We don't, we're not going to the spa, we're going to Mordor in, in, this, in this chapter. And, uh, and so my guess, but, but guess who did resonate with this? Guess who did? They, they looked at Psalm 110, they're like, yes. Guess who resonated? Jesus. This Psalm especially resonated with Jesus. And guess who else? Every single one of his disciples. Remember, this psalm is the most quoted passage of scripture in the New Testament. So by this criteria, Psalm 110 is Christianity's favorite psalm. Why? Because it presents Jesus as supreme, benevolent dictator of the cosmos. The all-loving ruler of creation. That's, that's the identity, the primary identity. And so, so the key to all of this is in verse 1. And here's the heart of the sermon. Here's where we're headed. So let's look at it. It starts with, of David, a psalm. And that's actually in the Bible. It's not by your English translators. That is from the Hebrew. Um, it, it, so it's, it's David wrote this a thousand years before Jesus. Okay, verse 1. It says, the Lord, all caps. What does that mean when you see Lord, all caps? Yahweh. Yahweh. That's the personal name of a God who wants relationship. So Yahweh creator says to my Lord, who is Yahweh talking to? Who's my Lord? It suddenly, we're just thrown for a loop all of a sudden. The Lord says to my Lord, wait, are you saying Yahweh's not my Lord here? Actually, correct. Yahweh is not my Lord here, according to this psalm, it's this person, my Lord is this person, Yahweh will appoint to rule on his behalf. And it's the Messiah. So, so Yahweh says to his appointee, he says, sit at my right hand. What does that mean? It means Yahweh creator is inviting this appointed one to, to come up to heaven and rule on Yahweh's behalf. This is very unexpected. Most Jews expected the Messiah to be ruling in Jerusalem only and overthrow Caesar with literal violence. Um, that was the expectation. But here, Yahweh's like, no, 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 no. Come to heaven. Come up to my throne room and rule next to me over all of my creation. So Yahweh says, sit at my right hand. That's what he means until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that's kind of pretty, that's pretty self-explanatory. It's like, it's like kiss my boots, right? It's like, I'm going to walk all over you. That's it. This is power domination. Messiah gets all the glory. His enemies get humiliated. So see the picture here. Yahweh God, creator, invites the Messiah into heaven to sit on the divine throne, prop his feet up on a footstool made of his enemies. So, so that's the image of Psalm 110, and it's the favorite image of the New Testament for who Jesus is. So a thousand years after this verse was written, Jesus uses it to explain what he was all about in his two moments of greatest crisis. So he was at the temple, overturning tables, and people are like, how do you have the authority to do this? And he starts talking about this verse. And then another time, he's on trial. You remember Jesus on trial for his life. Well, when they ask him, who do you say that you are? He goes here. And so let's go there. Mark 14, verse 60. The high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, 
are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, gave no answer, in total control. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemn Jesus to die. So Jesus is convicted. This is his sentencing. And, and why? It's not blasphemy to say I'm a king because you could just write off a lunatic if they're not really a king. Um, it's not blasphemy to say I'm the son of the blessed one because that's a typical name in Judaism for a king. They're, they're all considered sons of the blessed one. So what's the blasphemy? The blasphemy is saying you will see me rule on Yahweh's behalf <laughs> to sit at the right hand of Yahweh. If that's not true, that is absolutely blasphemy, claiming equality with the creator. And that's Jesus quoting straight from Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. And he actually goes way beyond their question. They're like, do you dare claim king of Israel? He's like, no, 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 the whole planet, you know? That's what he's doing here. Like, they weren't even there. No wonder they, like, rip off their clothes in agony. They weren't expecting to just be uh, total curveballed by Jesus' holistic claim. And he's saying, Jesus, I'm saying, I am a divine figure. I share Yahweh's identity, and I'm going to rule. Whoops. This is how Jesus sees himself. He sees himself in terms of Psalm 110.1. And it's not just Jesus who sees Jesus that way. All the New Testament writers, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who he is, uh, they spend the whole book basically saying Jesus is bigger and badder than you ever thought or anyone you've seen. Even Paul goes here. Look at Ephesians. He kicks off the famous letter to Ephesus like this. That power, what power? The power working in God's church to make God's church like Jesus in the world. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms above every other authority. And then the next slide. So right hand, and, and God placed all things where? Under his feet. There's the footstool. And he's head over everything for the church. You, that's you. He's head over everything. And now we're his body operating with his authority. You guys operate in his authority as the spirit fills you to be the family, the found family of God filled with his generosity and spirit. We're actually furthering his authoritative rule in the world, subversively, quietly, patiently, against the methodologies of all the power brokers that want their own agendas done. We do Jesus' agenda this way. So do you see what Paul is doing? He's working out Psalm 110. Oh my God, like Lord Jesus, is this who you are? You are that, you use this chapter, I'm using this chapter, I'm connecting all the dots and he's like, Yahweh has elevated Jesus. Do you realize what this means? If he's ruling now, then he must be above Caesar, all kings, 
they're, they're being defeated right now. Like to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 2, they're all fading away as the coming age is growing by Jesus' authority. Every king and queen, every emperor, every elected official, every president, they're all currently under Jesus' political authority right now. All the Republican, Democrat, partisan games are being exposed as working for the same corrupt machine of human demonic mixture. All of them. And Jesus is exposing all of it. And he's empowering his church to be his kingdom response to all of it, to subvert it lovingly, quietly, peaceably. This is the upside down kingdom of the king who will reign forever. This kingdom is not going to end. It's going to bubble up from the soil. Starting with churches like this and like any other church that comes around word, table, song, and praise in the confession that this king is supreme ruler. Because with that confession, Jesus can now build his church. Not even the gates of hell can stand against it. And in 2050, if there's another pandemic, we will see the church continuing to rule with Jesus's authority against every power that tries to stamp it out. Have you noticed through history what happens to the church when demonic human mixture authority tries to stamp out the church? It only grows. It's like that's the one lesson Satan never learns from. He tries to stamp out God's people and it always backfires because Jesus's rule comes from the throne room of heaven at the right hand of the Father doesn't come from anywhere else. All other rules come from somewhere else that's lower. Jesus' ascension means his rule has, is the only one that has no end because he has the privilege of seeing the end from the beginning. And so right now, we're in an uncertain time where COVID-19 has given us a fresh sense of uncertainty, the likes of which we haven't seen. All the extroverts were freaking out <laughs> under lockdown and pumped out of their minds disproportionately to get back to whatever the thing is. And all the introverts were pumped <laughs> about it. But now they're, they're freaking out because they're like, how do I come back? I don't understand my life. And in, in all of this, in, in all of this, we are the found family of Jesus. Under the rule of Jesus and the only organization sharing the rule. We're the only organization sharing the rule of this Messiah figure. We will judge with him at the end. We will co-create with him in the new creation, partner with him forever to build eternal societies of love forever in the name of Jesus. And whoever confesses that this Jesus is Lord joins the program, joins the family, and next week we're going to have baptisms. That is the joining ceremony. That's the wedding. That's the wedding for the marriage. That is life in Christ. Before all the witnesses, we say, yes, Jesus is supreme ruler. He earned that right by dying on the cross and resurrecting, and he's sitting at the right hand of God. I believe his worldview is the reality one. And so I step into the waters in front of all of my new family, saying, I'm in. I'm a lifer. I'm in for Jesus forever and beyond. And so everyone who says that gets to be part of this family, gets to be part of Jesus's victory. This is how we pray in Christ's victory. We realize this is the, re the real, the correct worldview. It is. 
And that's just a direct confrontation to pluralism. We have to be honest about that. Because Jesus' core identity is supreme ruler of the universe. And, and we have to be honest, like we're Americans. We nod our heads, yeah, Jesus, supreme ruler. But we still don't get it because we don't get rulers. We don't get kings. We're all about democracy, right? We believe in self-government, being true to who we are, right? We believe the people rule. And I, I hope you figured out by now, the Bible doesn't give a rip about democracy. It doesn't say bad or good either way, it just doesn't care. The kingdom of God is not ruled by popular vote. When Jesus comes back to rule all nations, he's not gonna hold an election. He's not gonna campaign like, remember, I'm the one who died for you. And we're like, yeah, but what's your 2022 policy, you know? What about the issues, Jesus? That's not, that's not gonna be a thing. And it's not, just our, it's not just our obsession with democracy, it's our obsession with the individual. It's about my preferences, my desires, my self-expression. I should have the freedom to do whatever I want. As long as I have consent, they have consent, and I'm not hurting anyone. We call these rights. We have rights and freedoms, right? Guess what, scriptures don't give a rip about rights either. Like, they don't talk about rights. What they do talk about is our responsibility to lay down our personal freedoms for the sake of others especially the people that society calls the worthless. We love them, and we lay down our rights for the vulnerable. But like, Evan, doesn't the Bible talk about freedom? <laughs> and yes, but the scriptures use it very differently, very different definition than American freedom. In our culture, freedom is from authority for autonomy, to live how we want. But in the kingdom of God, freedom is from sin for loving relationship. That's freedom to live the way God wants. We're free to love and serve and truly flourish. Don't you think the creator has the right to define what human flourishing truly is? He made us and he loves us. So our fundamental problem is that God's kingdom is Jesus-centered, our culture is individual-centered. We have to be honest about this. Psalm 110 is totally against the grain in our culture. It, that's why it doesn't resonate. That's why it's not our life verse. The concept of Jesus as supreme ruler, it doesn't get us warm and vibey. Uh, that's why we love to talk about Jesus. He's our friend. He's our teacher. He's my counselor, which is all true, 100%. But we have to be careful that we don't just gravitate toward those titles because they describe what we get from Jesus. We have to be very intentional. We don't cherry pick our favorite biblical concepts to construct an unbiblical Jesus. Very easy to do. He's our counselor. Jesus is our friend and our teacher and our savior. And what makes all of those possible at once is he's the supreme benevolent dictator. All loving shot collar of the cosmos. Perfectly loving. So Christ... We use that word all the time, and we think it's like his last name, like Mr. Christ is Jesus. And so we say we're Christ follower. We even say it in our religion, right? In our faith, Chris, Christian, Christian. But the word Christ is just the English of the Greek word Christos, which is a literal translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah. It's all the same. 
Um, and Messiah, according to Psalm 110, is supreme ruler. Supreme ruler. So by saying Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, cosmic emperor. Or Jesus, supreme ruler. Core identity of our God in Christ. So every time we use the word Christ, even when we call ourselves Christian, we're talking about his power over everything, and that's his identity. If we don't get this right, we have no business calling ourselves Christ followers. Okay, so if you're a Christ follower, the, the, next, the next question, or if you're like looking into following Jesus, how do you do it? How, do, how does one follow a supreme loving dictator or whatever? <laughs> that's, that's not someone you follow very often. So how do, how do you follow Christ? So just uh, illustration, by way of illustration, he's not here, I can pick on him. I, lo- I, I follow Scott Curran on Instagram. <laughs> so I follow him, right? And, and he's great. I like his posts. Like he talks about Jesus and, and how Jesus intersects with culture. And he'll post pictures about his fiance. They're engaged, by the way. It's awesome. And, and the events that are happening and all that good stuff. So Scott's great. Love to follow him. I like his things. Uh, but then, but then, uh, when a, but then a Star Wars movie comes out, and he po- he starts posting a lot. And I don't want to see Star Wars posts. <laughs> part is just because I don't want to see Star Wars posts. <laughs> the other part is I don't like any. I think I think any trailers are spoilers. I'm a purist like that. So I can't. Unf- but here's the problem: I can't unfollow him because that'll be weird at community night, right? He'll get there and it'll be, I don't, wanna, I don't want the grief of explaining myself. He'll know I unfollowed him. So guess what? What's the best function on Instagram? Mute. Mute, y'all. Mute is the gift that keeps on giving out of 2020 for me. God's gift to 2020 was the mute button, 100,000%. Which means I can mute Scott when it's Star Wars movie season. I can still follow him, but I don't have to see everything he says. See, see where I'm going? <laughs> so I think a lot of us follow Jesus the way I follow Scott on IG. Heart what we like, mute what we don't. And we do this because we, because we value, be true to yourself. Self-expression, that's a value for us. We even tell kids in school, be you, be yourself. And they're like, I am me and I'm a kid and I don't know what you mean. <laughs> that's so philosoph- philosophical. <laughs> but, but be true to yourself is a value. It resonates with us. At the same time, Jesus followers say Jesus is Lord, (laughs) supreme ruler. And guess what? Those two things will be at odds entirely at times. What do you do then? So I realize what I'm about to say doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to say for me. Uh, Probably doesn't feel good to hear. But um, here it goes. Following Jesus Christ, supreme ruler, means you must obey him in every aspect of your life. Period. And I realize the word obey has baggage. Negative connotations. And listen, if you've been hurt by a power abuser in the church, then as a church leader, I'm so sorry. And I pray that this house becomes a house of healing for you as you authentically process in community and receive Jesus' healing. At the same time, I wanna be clear, obey is the right word. 
It's the word Jesus used in his final speech to give the church, us, our mission. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples, baptizing them, which we're going to do next week. Come be baptized. And what else? How do we make disciples? Verse 20, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he doesn't leave us alone. He's with us to the end. So following Jesus means anything. It means that. Seeking to obey Jesus in every aspect of your life you can think of. How are you guys doing? Good. So I admit I was feeling super inadequate yesterday, finishing up this sermon prep. Um, I'm so far from honoring Jesus in every aspect of my life. I mean... Sandy says that I'm a different man than she married. She says she, she said in a good way, <laughs> she says, uh, she's like, I married a boy and now I'm married to a man, she says. So I, I attribute that to the grace of Jesus empowering me to partner with him to mature and grow and bear fruit. However, two weeks ago was like my worst week in years. Under a lot of pressures from different things I have on my plate, and I just got so bitey with my wife, so angry, uh, out of very normal interactions. And so she's like, Evan, like, you haven't acted like this since the first year of planting Park Hill. What's up? And she has a way of just calling it like it is and maintaining her cool. And I was just not. And it's just in reaction to all these little things, these little defensivenesses that I would put out there because I didn't get my agenda, my self-orientation wasn't able to be expressed in all the ways. Um, I'm so far. I'm so far from that. Every aspect of my life under a Jesus authority. Um, So I'm like, why am I giving this talk even? and so I realize this, this topic can feel oppressive and stuffy. But listen, none of that has to be the case because following Jesus is far from oppressive because we know who he is. We know, we know what he's like. The supreme ruler happens to be the definition of beauty, truth, and goodness. He, def- he defined, created and defined truth, beauty, goodness. And, and listen, not only is he amazing, but he wants relationship with you. Like real covenant sharing of intimacy with you through the church and as an individual. He wants you. And obedience is part of it. But obedience without relationship, that is oppressive. That is abuse. No relationship and demands, like that's not doable. But that's not anything like what Jesus wants. The invitation to follow this king is an invitation into covenant partnership with someone who already knows your deepest soul. He's committed to your highest good. And so, what's that last sentence? Following him means trusting his definition of good, especially when your definition disagrees with his. That's where obedience counts. It's that moment, okay, I choose to trust Jesus even against my gut instinct. Even against my own personal story or narrative. 
And listen, uh, you guys know me. I think personal stories matter. Every story matters. Every experience, come to the table, share it. Absolutely, I believe that. But if we're gonna follow Christ, we can't be driven by narrative authority. We have to be driven by Jesus' authority as it comes to us through the scriptures. And when, when the biblical authority, when, when the scripture's authority, which is Jesus's, when that confronts our personal narrative, our personal stories have to bend to God. If not, we're saying, I'm God. It's like, I appreciate the Bible, but I'm kind of my own baseline. I appreciate Jesus, but I'm my own Jesus. We have to be really careful. Jesus doesn't come that, that really affirming, supportive friend who just says yes to everything we do. Maybe we have some personal values around politics or sexuality or how we spend our money or how we invest our time. Maybe we have these very deep convictions and maybe Jesus doesn't agree with all of them. So like maybe there's a rebuke he has for us. I think a lot of people in church today, because of pluralism kind of invading the cracks, uh, what we end up doing with our Christianity, our theology, is we take a couple scenes from the life of Jesus that we like, and not normally the one where he's like ripping a new one into Pharisees, because we don't identify with the Pharisees. Um, but maybe it's someone being bullied by the Pharisees. And, and we take that one, which we, which we feel sometimes in a victim mindset culture, and, and we see Jesus being nice over here, so we take the victim one and the nice Jesus one, and we put them together and make two lenses, and we read the whole Bible through these lenses, and we actually have made a God in our own making in that moment. Because then, with those lenses, we can't see Psalm 110, which is the one the New Testament was most crazy about, where Jesus crushes Satan and all his friends. And thousands of Jesus followers stand at the ready to face opposition to their death in Jesus' name. If we leave out that image of Jesus, then the reality is we're following someone other than the Jesus who's come to us in the scriptures. Jesus is the supreme ruler of the universe who demands our allegiance. That is what Psalm 10 is telling the whole New Testament and us. And he earned that right by dying on the cross for our sin. So forgiveness would be free. Everyone is included in the offer. His radical forgiveness is a radically inclusive offer. The, re the requirement is that you admit your need. And this implies allegiance. And by his sheer grace, he offers healing and belonging. Belonging, you guys. I think belonging is the, the gift that the church has to give a post-COVID world. The gospel brings belonging to, to lost people. And I don't, I don't mean lost. Maybe, maybe you have associations with the word lost. I don't mean some dummy who's out there who needs to return. I mean what Jesus means when he says, there's a lost coin in this living room somewhere. I'm gonna rip the furniture apart until I find it. I love that coin. There's a lost sheep somewhere out there. I'm gonna leave the safe 99 to find it. There's a lost son that's taken everything and shamed me publicly and spit in my face. I am going to keep my eyes peeled on the horizon so that when I see his silhouette, I hike up my robe, embarrass myself in front of the other landowners, 
and sprint across town before anyone else convicts or stones my son. And I'm going to embrace him and throw a party with the rest of my riches for this lost son. For Jesus, lost means loved. It doesn't mean idiot. And after COVID, lostness is the, is, is the new sin. People are lost. Sin is also guilt, shame, offense against God, defilement. But wrapped up into this sin picture, we have to have a category for lostness. And the church is the found family of God from every nation and tribe who just admits their need for healing, forgiveness, and being found. And in that moment, we will be 2030, 2040. Who knows what kind of world 2050 will, will bring? I read in a Wired magazine article by a sociologist, they expect everything we teach our kids today will be irrelevant by the year 2050. Because information is being exchanged so quickly, the world will be unrecognizable. But guess what will be entirely recognizable? Word, table, song, prayer. Those who practice Jesus' way in submission to his rule by the power of his spirit as the family of God in the world, (laughs) that will never go away. Jesus has ensured it by his own spirit and his own authority. So we're going to come to the table now the table of our ruler who gave his life so that we could live, who was abandoned so we could be found and belong. And, and as we come to the table, you guys, if you have not accepted Christ's invitation to be a beloved child of his father, what's keeping you? To pose the question of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, whose side are you on? (laughs) When the all-powerful ruler happens to have defined love, goodness, truth, and beauty, (laughs) then that's the best case scenario for the universe. Are you on his side? Is there any reason you would say no to this grace? Maybe you've been walking with him and there are aspects of your life you've taken back into your own self-expression and you've rationalized it. And you've been like, well, I'm a Christian, I'm part of this Christ-following thing and I go to church and I have this kind of orbit around Jesus. But you've grown little chambers in your life where you've learned to rationalize and minimize your lack of allegiance to Jesus in that. Let the call pierce your heart today to pledge full and complete allegiance to this king who makes all the right judgment calls. Everything hidden will be exposed. Everything that was lied about, swept under the rug, will come to light. This is who he is. His kingdom is coming, and it's the best possible environment for human flourishing. Why say no? Even if you consider yourself a Christian, why say no in that when the goodness is being offered? So if we could stand together and come to his table with a, with a heart to say like yes to all. Check the box, yes to all the above. Everything that Jesus is. 
Let that be our creed. Heavenly Father, would you have your way in your church through your Son and Spirit right now? As we come to your table, may there be no more lies, no more minimizing little pieces of rebellion, but yes to the best possible, best imaginable King who happens to want relationship, offers healing, brings joy, makes peace. Thank you, this is who you are. We praise you, God. Hallelujah. Come, Holy Spirit, lead us to Jesus at the table now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So right now, let the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, direct us to Jesus at the table. Feel free to come forward during this song, grab a cup, bring it back to your seat, and then hold on to it, and then Pastor Ariel, she's gonna come and uh, lead us in eating and drinking together. And then we'll pray for each other and go. Awesome.